0: Uh, Because people are uh, staying away from faith and walking away from faith in record numbers, uh, something's going to happen in our country in the year 2020 that has never been a reality before. And they tell us that in the year 2020, officially, statistically, our nation will become a post-Christian nation. And that's happening because of the record numbers of folks who are walking away from the church or deciding to pass on the church altogether. And this is happening specifically among the millennials and Generation Z, and it's taking us to a place that in just over a couple of years, a place where we have never been before, we will be a part of a post-Christian nation. And this is happening in large part because there is a misunderstanding both inside and outside the church about Christianity. Uh, There's a misunderstanding inside and outside the church about who God is and who Jesus is and the message that Jesus actually presented when he was here in the first century. And part of that misunderstanding, I think, goes back to a misrepresentation that the church has contributed to in our culture, where in many cases, the church has misrepresented what Christianity is truly all about. We have misrepresented authentic Christianity. We have misrepresented who Jesus is and what Jesus taught while he was with us here on the earth. And because of that misrepresentation, people are staying away from faith and people are walking away from faith. They consider God, they consider church, they consider Jesus, they consider Christianity highly resistible. And because they find it highly resistible, they are deciding to take a pass on it. And the result of all of that is right here, that there is an increasing number of people who seem to believe that their lives will be better without faith. And that's why we're doing this series called Better, because we believe that Christianity is better than any of us could have ever imagined it to be. And we believe that Christianity is better than so many people have been led to believe, because here we are, in this culture that is full of cynics and skeptics and they are cynical and skeptical about all things faith, all things God, all things Jesus, all things church. And we as the church now have this incredible opportunity to demonstrate and communicate who Jesus is and what it is he came to establish in this thing called the Jesus movement or what we also call the church. Now. The good news is that the culture that we are currently living in was much like the culture that Jesus stepped into in the first century, where a lot of people were walking away from faith or considering walking away from faith. On one hand, you had the Jewish folks who were highly religious. On the other side, you had the pagans who were also highly religious. The Jewish people had lots of laws. The pagan folks had lots of gods. The Jewish people had lots of moral constraints. The pagans had very few moral constraints, but what they shared in common was that there was a growing number of people inside both of those camps that were disengaging from their faith. Their faith felt empty. Their faith felt pointless. They felt disconnected from their God or their gods. Other people seemed to have access, but they as common people, common men and women did not have the access as the hierarchy of their origin afforded a certain few. And so because of that type of culture, Jesus showed up onto the pages of history in the first century, and he declared that there was was something better than what people had settled for. And last week we said that Jesus offered better. He offered a better idea of God. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. If you wanna know what God is like, then look at me. He offered a better approach to life. He says, do this and not do that because it's better. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. And my way is better. I know it's hard to believe, but my way is better than your way. And so here is a brand new approach to life. And then Jesus offered a better hope than religion ever could and so last week if you weren't here we talked about how jesus uh, on the night that he's going to be betrayed and arrested he took his disciples to the upper room and he wanted to celebrate passover with them and something's going to happen in that room which is so profound and so significant we don't talk about it enough But he went up there in the upper room and he celebrated Passover, something they had been celebrating for 1,400 years. And Passover was a commemoration. It was a celebration of what God had done for Israel through Moses when he delivered them out of the slavery of Egypt. They went from being slaves to being free. And that's what Passover was about every year, remembering what God had done through Moses for the nation of Israel. But Jesus said, from now on, I'm going to redefine Passover Because I am your Passover lamb. I am the final lamb, the final sacrifice for sins. And from now on, you're going to think about what God has done for you through me. Because I'm about to go die on a cross for your sins, the sins of the world. I'm going to be buried, but I'm going to be raised on the third day because I'm about to inaugurate something new. And if Jesus came to establish something new, there must be something new old. And Jesus said, I have come to establish something new that is different from the old and it is better than the old. Jesus said there was an old covenant and we're going to talk about that today. He says, I have come to establish a new covenant. I have come to end the old and usher in the new. And the thing that made the new covenant better than the old covenant was one word and one word only, grace. It's what Philip Yancey said is the last great covenant. Word. It's what C.S. Lewis said. This is the one thing that sets Christianity apart from all other religions, because every other religion, they share one thing in common. They tell their adherents, they tell people that there's something that you need to do. There's something required for you to do in order to be okay with God. Only Christianity says that if you want to be okay with God, it has nothing about what you can do for God, but it has everything to do with what God has done for you through God. Christ and what Jesus presented was new and it was better. It was better than the old covenant. And so here it is the old covenant, just in case you want to know, the old covenant was a conditional covenant of law. And again, we're going to talk about this today. We're going to try to make it hopefully more clear than, than maybe how you've thought about it in the past. But the old covenant was a conditional covenant of law. God said, if you obey me, I will do this. It was a bilateral agreement, and it was conditional on behalf of what Israel would do for God. But the new covenant was an unconditional covenant of Grace. When Jesus showed up, Jesus began to preach and teach a message of grace based on belief, not a message of law based on behavior. That's why Christianity's greatest gift to the world is this thing called grace. Because only Jesus, study history, world history, church history, religious history, only Jesus showed up to present an idea of God, a reality of God that says there is grace that is free of charge to people who do not deserve it. That was Jesus's message. That there is a grace free of charge for people who don't deserve it. Only Christianity can sing songs like this right here. This is one of my favorite, but think about this. Only Christianity sings songs about grace. That's unique for us because Jesus said, I come to offer you something better, something new. Only Christians sing songs like this. This is one of my favorite. Marvelous grace of our loving lord grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt you think about all the sin and guilt that you can rack up in the amount of years that you've lived and the songwriter says grace is better than the sin it's greater than the sin greater than the guilt you've racked up grace grace god's grace grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace grace god's grace and I love this grace that is greater than all all our Sin. And we sing songs like that because of what Jesus presented to the world something new and something better. Matter of fact, our greatest song of all time Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Only Christianity sings songs about grace. Now get this, grace isn't natural and grace isn't intuitive and it rankles against our sensibilities. That's grace. It doesn't come natural for us. It's not instinctive for us. And it bothers us when we want God to do something logical because grace is illogical. And Jesus knew that all of us have an innate resistance to grace. There's something inside of us that wants people to have to earn their own way. We love to think, and we're so influenced by the American dream, the American culture, we love to think that people, People like you, people like me should get what we deserve. We should pay our own way. We should earn our own way. And it's so hard for us in our culture to really grasp and receive grace because there's a big part of us that we reject grace. We rebel against grace because when we see it, it doesn't seem natural. It doesn't seem sensible. It doesn't seem intuitive. It's unnatural. It's counterintuitive and it's completely illogical. So Jesus, to counteract our resistance to grace, he told stories and stories were so incredible that he told. Stories of extravagant grace, grace that had no strings attached, no loopholes, no exceptions, no exemptions for people who do not deserve it. And this message of Jesus was either too good to be true or it was too good not to be true. And so John, who was there in the upper room that night when Jesus said, I have come to start a new and better covenant. Years after Jesus had ascended back to the Father, after he died for sins, was buried and raised from the dead, he thinks back on the message and the life and the ministry of Jesus. And as he begins to pen the biography of Jesus that we call the Gospel of John, all these thoughts about Jesus come to bear in the first chapter. And this is what he says. He says, The word became flesh, another word for God. This is what John's talking about, that God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now think about this for a moment. If this is true, it changes everything. As Eugene Peterson said, this was like God moving into the neighborhood. This was God pitching his tent, tabernacling among his people. That God was not satisfied to be distant from you, to be distant from me, God drew close to us. And if this is true, it changes absolutely everything. He says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son who came from the father. And he says, the best way I know to describe Jesus, I was with him. I saw him. I touched him. I heard him. I was with 3D Jesus. So let me tell you, the best way I know to describe him is that he was full of grace and truth that he would not he refused to sacrifice grace for the sake of truth and he would not sacrifice truth for the sake of grace i was with him i watched him interact with people i listened to his tone i listened to you know i watched his facial expressions i looked at what he said and how he said it and i'll tell you after being with him i want to say that he was full of grace and truth and sinners loved it matter of fact they sought after jesus they loved his company because I think he was full of grace and truth. And then John, he goes on, he says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. And John, he gives us a word picture and he says, we all received grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace. That's what we have received from him. The apostle Paul will come along later and he will write you know nearly half of the New Testament and he will tell us that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And that's what John's talking about. He said that's how he dealt with us. We were messed up. We had misunderstandings. We acted silly from time to time. We fell on our faces publicly at times, and it was grace upon top of grace upon top of grace. In other words, John's point is this. You can't out the grace of God. You see, some of us, we get a little tight when we hear that. We get a little bothered, and we're like, come on now, say the rest of it. And those of you who are laughing, you know the rest of it. Some of us are like, the rest of it? Let's just stop right there. <laughs> if you saw my weekend, bro, <laughs> let's stop right there. You can't outsend the grace of God. Now, next week we'll talk about whether you should try or not. <laughs> but John says, hey, let's just think about that for a moment. You can't outsend the grace of God. It's grace upon grace upon grace. I saw people of all kinds, all labels, all categories, all classifications that came to Jesus. And I'm telling you, I didn't see a single person that could out his grace. And then John takes a step and John, a fisherman, a fisherman, not a theologian, not a scholar, but a fisherman from Galilee begins to tell us that Jesus has ushered in something new and something better. And he looks back and he thinks about the old covenant. He thinks about the old way, the old regime. And he says, for the law, was given through Moses. Now, whenever you see the law, it can refer to lots of different things in the New Testament, but primarily it's referring to the 10 commandments, right? You know, the thou shalt nots. A lot of us know the 10 commandments. Statistically, Americans can't quote them all, but, but you know them when you see them. And, and a few of you, you, you were like perfect attendance in Sunday school growing up. You still got the little stars and the ribbons. You know the 10 and you know who you are. But the law, when the law is being talked about, it's talking about the old covenant, old covenant, conditional covenant that God made with Israel, This is the 10 commandments, and this is all the other commandments on top of the 10. Matter of fact, by the time Jesus came, there were over 600 laws that were people, they were trying to keep up with. Now, think about that. We can't even keep up with the 10. They were trying to keep up with over 600. So, whenever you see the law, this is God's, now, please, don't, don't miss this. If you miss what I'm about to say, you will read the Bible entirely Wrong. You will have the wrong view of the Old Testament and you will have a wrong view of the New Testament and you ultimately will misunderstand the good news of what Jesus came to share with the world. The Old Covenant was God's ancient covenant with Israel. Not with the world. God entered into a covenant with one particular group of people. Not all people, but one particular group of people. He did not enter into a covenant of law with the Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people. He only entered into a covenant of law with the Jewish people. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Now the law, it was a detailed standard. Laws, rituals, regulations of things that God required from his people. And God required righteousness, and God declared, you know, desired and, you know, demanded holiness. Because God was righteous, and God was holy, and God wanted his people to be holy, and God wanted his people to be righteous. And so he gave them all of these laws... And he gave them in one sense, these laws to make them different from all the pagan nations that they were gonna be living among in the land of Canaan. They were gonna be surrounded by pagans that believed in other gods and they lived their lives in an entirely different way. And God wanted to set his people apart. He wanted to make them different. So he gave them his law. Now, to understand the old covenant in its entirety, you need to understand the timeline of the Old Testament, at least some of the major events of the Old Testament so that we can fully understand what Jesus was doing when he showed up and said, I've got something new and something better. Now, the law, before we can talk about that, we need to go back to where it all starts. And you know where it all starts, many of you do. It starts with our first parents, Adam and Eve. Now, God, you know this story, many of you. God gave Adam and Eve one directive. He says, I want you to enjoy the entire world except one tree. But don't eat of that tree because if you do, you'll surely die. And the one thing that they wanted was the one thing that God told them they couldn't have. They wanted what was forbidden. So here's what they did. Now think about this. They undermined themselves. God had told them what was going to happen. If you eat of this, you'll surely die. They undermined themselves, but listen, they undermined each other. Eve undermined her husband in order to have what she wanted. And Adam was willing to undermine the future of Eve to get what he also wanted. And they risked each other's lives to get what they wanted. And so they ate of the tree. In that moment, sin entered into the world. Destruction, death came with it. And in that moment, the Bible teaches us, the scriptures, and specifically the New Testament teaches us that in that moment, we all became broken in some way. That in that moment when our first parents sinned, they passed on to us this brokenness where we have a propensity to sin. Have you noticed that we have a propensity to undermine our own future? to get what we want. We have the propensity to undermine other people's future to get what we want. We will risk ourselves, we will risk somebody else to get what we want. We will even harm, hurt, break the heart of God to get what we want and we have been that way since the very beginning and so that's where it starts and so they were naked and not ashamed before that. Now all of a sudden they're naked and ashamed And God comes to them. They run away from God. And God makes a sacrifice in the garden and clothes them with the skin of animals. And they leave the garden. And the next big event that we're introduced to is a guy by the name of Abraham, who's a pagan, doesn't even believe in the God that created Adam and Eve. He's over there in the land of earth, you know, over there in the land where he's living with his parents and living with his grandparents and living with his wife and all the people that work for them. And he says, here's what I want you to do, Abraham. God says, I want you to leave the land Where you have grown up, I want you to leave your parents, I want you to leave your family, because I'm going to take you to a land that I'm going to show you when we get there. But here's what you need to know. One day I'm going to make your name great. And even though you have no children and no descendants, one day you're going to be the father of a great nation, and one of your descendants is going to bless the entire world. Because God had made a promise to Adam and Eve that one day there would be the seed of the woman that would be the savior of humanity. And now God is reiterating it in some way to Abraham that one day, one of your descendants is gonna bless the entire world. And Abraham believed God. And the scriptures say it was accounted to him as righteousness. Hundreds of years later, his family becomes a nation and they're in Egypt. And we're introduced to Moses in the Exodus. They've been slaves for over 400 years. Finally, God answers their cry and he raises up a leader by the name of Moses. They celebrate Passover that last night in Egypt, and they cross over the Red Sea that's been parted by the power of God. And God takes his people who were slaves, and now he has made them free. They've never been responsible for themselves. They've never had to govern themselves as such a vast number of people. So God, he takes them, once they leave Egypt, he takes them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he is going to give them the law. At Mount Sinai, God is gonna give them a way to govern themselves, to oversee themselves. And this is beyond the 10. Now, this is where we're talking about the old way, the old regime, the old covenant. This is where that started. Because God gave to them the 10 Commandments and beyond that, God gave to them so many more laws. Such detailed laws. And when you read it, you might even think to yourself, some strange laws that God gave to his people. Now, in this law, under this covenant, God, now, and of course, in our 21st century sensibilities, we're like, well, why does God even care about this? God gave them a menu that they essentially could eat off of. And he says, you can eat this, but you can't eat that. Now, God told them, here's some laws about what you can eat, and here's what God told them that they couldn't eat. They couldn't eat camels. Aren't you glad? (laughs) Anybody struggling, you know, right? You can't eat rabbits. It's like, okay. What's the problem with the rabbit? What's the problem with the camel? And then, of course, we know this when God says, you can't, you can't eat pigs. You can't have bacon. You can't have shellfish. You can't eat oysters. You, you can't have lobster. What did God have against the lobster? You ever thought about it? This is where people outside the church a lot of times will de- debate Christians about these, these laws and that we pick and choose which ones we obey and which ones we don't. And they're like, hey, you know, you eat lobster. I was like, oh, I'm not under the old. It's all new. And then, then you're also quoting from other commandments to say, well, this is what the Bible says. And people are like, well, you can't just do what you want to do and not do what you want to do. So God said, you can't eat lobster. Oh, this is, this is going to hurt. God said, you, when you have your steak... You can't have it medium rare, and there can be no fat on it. That means you can't go to Ruth Chris and order the tomahawk ribeye that's got that little layer of deckle, that fat, luscious, cinch, oh my gosh, that they cut off for you and, and, and then you put it in and it just melts like butter. It's like getting saved, but not as good. You, you couldn't do that. You, you couldn't do that. That was against the law. You couldn't be okay with God and eat the way that you wanted to eat. Now, here's some for you, for those of you who are 26 and younger. The law said you can't rip your jeans. (laughs) If you rip your jeans, you're inviting upon yourself the wrath of God. And you're like, why does God care about ripped jeans? Now, for those of you who are going to turn to the concordance of your Bible and look for the word jeans, it's not in there. But he told them not to rip their garments. It's the same thing. No ripped jeans. He says, no, you can't cut your hair short. There's a certain length that you can. not Don't do that. You can't trim your beard a certain way. You can't wear a polyester blend. You can't mix threads in your garments. Why? What was all of this about? You can't take two different types of seed, God said. This was their law. This was part of the covenant. You can't take two different types of seed and plant it in the same garden. Are you kidding me? You can't get any tattoos. And Kids? If you disobey your parents perpetually, they can take you outside the city walls and stone you. I told Shepherd the other day, you best be glad we're under something new, brother. <laughs> I'm two miles outside the city limits. <laughs> and he's looking at me. What are you talking about? Now, this is where it gets... He, they thought of everything. If you had sex with your wife... But not to the point of orgasm. As a male, you were both still considered clean. If you had sex with your wife and you had an orgasm, you both are considered unclean for a period of time. If you had sex with your wife while she was menstruating, you were both considered unclean and you ran the risk of being cut off indefinitely from the community of faith. If you sat in a chair where your wife had sat while she was having her monthly period, you too were considered unclean. If you were a female and on your wedding night it was discovered that you were not a virgin, you could be stoned, which was convenient for men because there was no such test for us. <laughs> and you read through this as a female in the 21st century and it's troubling, it's, it's bothersome. Because if you gave birth to a female, you were considered unclean for a longer period of time than if you gave birth to a male child. Now, here's the one that just... (laughs) If you were a wife and your husband was in a fist fight, this is in the Bible. Some of you are actually gonna go home, blow the dust off your Bible and read it for the first time this evening. Some of you are gonna call your pastor, your real pastor and say, does this guy know what he's talking about? If you were a wife and your husband was in a fist fight, and then he began to lose the fight, you were not allowed to go to the guy that he was fighting and grab his genitals and twist. (laughs) Or your hand could be cut off. Now I'm just saying, this is the way I think. You're not gonna convince me that that had not already happened and somebody's like, (laughs) I am on this committee. But let me tell you, when I was 25, (laughs) no sex with animals, who you can have sex with, who you can't have sex with, all in the law. If you curse your parents, it's worthy of death. If you committed adultery, it's worthy of death. You You couldn't boil goat in its mother's milk. So there's all this clean and unclean. And it's one thing to call an animal clean and another thing to call an animal unclean. But it took it a step further. And this, this just goes against us. In our social justice world where we want rights for all people and we want people to have an equal shake and you know all of the things that are big voices in our culture right now, what I'm about to say it just cuts against us and we can't even understand it. It also labeled people unclean, unclean people if you had a physical defect, you were not allowed to come near to the presence of God. If you had a running sore, you were not allowed to come near the presence of God, you were unclean. If you had a damaged testicle, you were unclean. If you were hunched back, you were unclean. If you had a crippled hand or a crippled foot, you were unclean. If you had had a nocturnal emission in one of your dreams, you were unclean. You were not allowed to come to the presence of God, and over and over again, this culture of law spoke in terms of clean and unclean and right and wrong. And this existed for 1400 years that the people of God, the Jewish people lived with this mindset and it began to change the way they thought about God. And then we come to the arrival of Jesus and everything changed. And John says for the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus. Jesus turned religion upside down. And Jesus, he perturbed to no end the Jewish religious establishment. Jesus said, I know that you have got this menu, this law of your diet that you've lived under for 1,400 years. But I want to tell you, it is not the food that you eat or the drink that you drink and put it into your mouth which defiles you. Jesus said, it is what was already in your heart which defiles you. And all the Jewish people that had lived under this covenant of dietary laws, they're like, what? (laughs) What? You're telling me it doesn't matter what I eat? Jesus said, I know that you can be stoned to death for breaking the Sabbath, but I'm going to tell you, I'm healing on the Sabbath because I would rather do good than be right. They're like, what? And Jesus invited clean and unclean, physical defect or not, to come near to the Word made flesh. A woman who had been menstruating for years, a problem with her blood flow, she came and touched Jesus. Jesus touched the sick and Jesus even touched the dead. And raised them to life. Jesus changed everything. He took 1400 years of tradition, history, and law. And he turned it upside down. And he said, I'm here for something new and better. And John says, that's significant because no one has ever seen God but the one and only son. Who himself, God, he is in the closest relationship with the father, has made him known. John said, he showed us what God was like. He showed us where we misunderstood God. And Jesus came and he peeled back the curtain and he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus changed the way the world would think about God because of the stories that he would tell. Jesus said, let me tell you a story about a business owner who hired employees. And some of those employees showed up early, worked hard all day until closing time. But some of those employees, they showed up at the end of the day, they showed up drunk, they were drunkards and gluttons and they showed up 15 minutes before closing time and they worked only 15 minutes, but they half worked it at that. And Jesus said, let me tell you what this business owner did. He gave both the same amount of money. And we don't like that. It's not what we would do, but it's grace. It's not sensible, but it's grace. It's not logical, but it's grace. And Jesus' point was this. God does not pay wages. God gives gifts. He doesn't pay wages for how good you are or lack of wages for how bad you are. Jesus said, let me tell you, you should be in relationship with people and be willing to forgive them 70 times seven. It's like we can't even count that. We can't even do that kind of math, Jesus. We're fishermen. That's my point. You shouldn't keep score on what anybody does to you. You should be free with your forgiveness. Why, Jesus? Because that's the way God has dealt with you. He keeps no record of wrong against you. And he told these stories about a shepherd who risked the lives of 99 to go find the one that wandered away. Or a housewife who searched the house over for a lost coin. Or a father who welcomed his prodigal back. No questions asked. No guilt. No shame. Because he said, I want you to see God for who he is. I don't want you to be misrepresented by some religion. I, I don't want religion to miscommunicate this to you. And for most people in Jesus' audience, this, this, was, this was new in their mind. They couldn't conceive of such thing. The Jews thought it was all about performance and morality, keeping those laws. But who could keep up with all those laws? And so when Jesus showed up and said things like this, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Because I know that's how you're, you're taking me. You think I'm just trying to tell you to forget about all that. That's not what I'm saying. I didn't come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. In other words, the law, of the prophets, they lead to me and they end with me. They point to me. In some shape, form, or fashion, they are the shadows and I am the substance. And they were pointing the world to when I would show up. Jesus would say the law has been fulfilled in me. The old has been done away with. I came to start something new and something better. And so it was with that, the church was born. And when the church was born, it was a primarily Jewish movement. It was all Jewish people following a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. Then about five or six years in, in the city of Antioch where Paul and Barnabas had gone, not only Jewish people are getting saved and coming to faith in Christ, but now all of a sudden, there's all these Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Jewish, Jewish people, they knew all the law. They knew all the stories of the Old Testament. But now all these Gentiles, two major pagan temples were in Antioch. So the, the amorality of Antioch was just off the charts. And, and Roman historians, they write about Antioch and, and its lack of morality. And the people were flocking out of paganism into the church, a group of people who had never heard of Adam and Eve, a group of people who had never heard about the law, a group of people who didn't know anything about what they were supposed to eat or whatnot. They had no moral code. And now all of a sudden they're in church with a bunch of Jewish people. When the Jewish people look over at them, they're like, what is happening? They're lawless. And so there began to be a group of people who were teaching the Gentiles, you've got to keep the law in order to be saved. You've got to become Jewish to be a follower of Jesus. You've got to follow the law of Moses in order to follow Jesus. In other words, you've got to be circumcised. So if you're a 30, 40, 56 year old Gentile, chances are you weren't circumcised. But they were teaching those people that if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to have a surgery. Altar counselors had first aid kits. <laughs> and so this was a big deal. And the church was fighting about this, and so they called a big conference down in Jerusalem. And Peter's there, and Paul is there, and Barnabas is there, and the leaders of the New Testament church, the apostles, they are there. And they're debating whether or not Gentiles, they're debating about us, they're debating about me and you, whether we have to keep the law in order to follow Jesus. What are our responsibilities to the old covenant? Do I have to keep the Ten Commandments? Do I have to keep any of the commandments? And so Peter stands up and says, hey, I've seen the Gentiles get saved. And I just want you all to know, (laughs) God has not discriminated against any of us. He's treated Jew and Gentile the same. We've both been saved by the grace of God. And why would we want to put on their backs a burden that we nor our ancestors could bear? Why would we want to bring them under the law? We haven't even kept the law. And then James, the half-brother Jesus says, I agree. I don't think we ought to make it difficult for people to turn to God. And so they concluded, and this is big. Here was their conclusion, and they put it in the form of a letter, and they wrote back to the Gentiles, people like you and me, that didn't know any of the Old Testament. And they said, this is your requirements. They said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. So this is it. They could have said anything. They could have started with Genesis. They could have took them to Exodus. They could have took them to Leviticus, Deuteronomy. They could have done any of that. You are to abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. (laughs) That was it. Nothing about creation. Nothing about Egypt. Nothing about Sinai. Nothing about the Pentateuch. Nothing. And basically, you can check me out on this. You may not like it, but you can check me out on it. What he's essentially saying is this. It would do you well not to continue to go to the pagan temple. Because that's what he's talking about. This is a collective instruction. These are not individual things because we don't. I order my steak medium. So do a lot of you. We're not bound to that. His point was this. That's what happened at the temple of the pagans. They sacrificed the idols. There was blood, there was meat strangled, and there was a lot of sexual immorality. It was part of the pagan ritual of worship. He says, hey, don't do that. You're going to drive your Jewish brothers and sisters crazy. So that's what I need you to do, and that's it. And in that moment, Christianity parted ways with Judaism forever. In that moment, the new, officially, became the position of the New Testament church. The old was no more. Something new was here, and it was better. You are not responsible. You have no moral obligation to the Old Testament law. What are you saying? That's what I'm saying. What? That's what they, that's what they said, and it bothers us. <laughs> Don't offend them but you're not under obligation to keep the law in order to be a follower of Jesus. No wonder Paul, who was there in that meeting, would write perhaps his most famous letter of all to a group of Christians in Rome when he clarified it for all of us, and this is what he said. But now, because something has changed. For 1400 years, it was something different. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify the righteousness this righteousness is given through faith through faith through belief not behavior in jesus christ to all clean unclean dietary non-dietary moral amoral to all who will believe he says there's no difference between jew and gentile we've both been freed from the burden and the shackles of the law For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by what? Talk to me. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, all of us are wrong, but all of us can be made right. There's a level playing field, all. There's no big sinners and no little sinners, just sinners. He presents us a God who can't be bought and a God who can't be bribed and a God that can't be coaxed. And he says that God is willing to justify you, not on the basis of how you behave, not on the basis of what you can do for God, but on the basis of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. That you can be justified just as if I had never sinned. Think about that. Just as if you had never sinned. It's not about what I did. Paul says it's about what he did did he was for you your heavenly father's been for you from the very beginning he's not against you and he proved it because he sent his son to die for you so what you need to know is you can't this is so good you cannot sin enough to bring back the anger of God that Jesus received in your place on the cross God's not angry anymore you can't even make him angry Jesus absorbed the full wrath of God the full punishment of your sin you can't sin enough to make him mad at you you know what you call that grace and the good news is this that god chose to give up his son rather than to give up on you and so paul says where then is boasting is it excluded Because of what law? The law that requires works, the old regime? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. By faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. That it's not about what you can do for God. The good news is that God sent his son to do something that you can never do for yourself. And so we say, well, why then the law? Why 1,400 years? Because the law ultimately shows us what was in our hearts all along, that we are rebels against God. And I will risk me and I will risk you to get what I want, even in the face of a loving, gracious just holy and righteous father the point of the law was to show us that it's impossible it's an impossible standard who could possibly keep it because if you broke one part you broke the whole the point of the law was you'll never be good enough no matter how good you are you'll never be good enough The point of the law was to say, you need a savior. You need to throw yourself upon the grace of God because none of us can earn it. None of us can keep it. And we conclude that it's apart from works, but it's the faith, it's the grace of God. It's faith in what Jesus did. A broken law requires a penalty be paid. The wages of sin was death. And the law and sin demanded a sacrifice. And Jesus showed up and Jesus took our guilt, though he was innocent and died so that we could take his innocence, though we were guilty and live. So when you read through the Old Testament and the tension between how does God feel about us, is he offended by us or does he love us? And the answer is yes, but he's for us. And it's always been his grace that allows faulty men and women. (laughs) Israel's greatest king, an adulterer, a murderer. Israel's founder, their greatest patriarch, Abraham. Sex trafficked his wife. Rahab, Tamar, a con artist like Jacob. It's grace. It isn't just It doesn't seem fair. It's just grace. And Jesus showed up into the world to say, the old has been done away with. And I've come to tell you about something new and better. And it's called grace. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Father, God help us just to experience the freedom. The fact that we're not under the yoke the bondage of the law. We've been set free to something new and better. And Father, next week we're gonna see that it's even better than what we talked about today. We're gonna talk about how we live in grace and what that looks like and what that means. But Father, I pray that you would remind us that we are no longer bound to the law. We have been set free. And it's not about what I can do. It's not about what I have to do. It's about what you have done for us. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, and everybody said.